We're going to be continuing with our series in John's Gospel. And we are at John 20, the same as last week, but we're going to focus more on the passage this week. Whereas last week I was looking really at what the theological meaning of the resurrection was and bringing in some of Paul's writings as well. So today we're going to be looking at the appearances of Jesus in John 20. And my goal is to fully receive the promise of life offered by Jesus at the end of this passage. We've got three parts. We're going to look at events at the tomb, which form the first panel of the story. Then we look at events in the locked room, which form the second half. And we're going to end by considering Jesus' closing words, by believing you may have life in his name and how we access this life. So, quick overview of the structure of John. It falls into two halves. There's the Book of Signs and the Book of Glory. The Book of Signs is Jesus' public ministry, miracles, teaching, and then the Book of Glory is his private teaching with his disciples and then his death, resurrection, and appearances. So, the Book of Glory is where we are now and begins in chapter 13 with a meal with the disciples and it ends chapter 21, which we'll be getting to shortly, a meal with the disciples, not this week, but shortly. And then in the middle of between those two meals, we have new teaching from Jesus in 14 through 17 and then 18 through 20 the rest, trials, crucifixion, and resurrection. So we're right at the end of that. Um, quick summary of last time on the resurrection. Three points. The first was that the resurrection of Jesus was not simply coming back to life, but it was the start of a new kind of humanity and even a new kind of reality. Jesus' resurrection was something just so important. It wasn't just, well, he did, he died, but he came back to life again. This was the new creation. And this new kind of human, this new kind of humanity has already begun in us if we are followers of Jesus. And we need to live out this new identity as being part of the resurrected new creation. That was last time. Uh, so now I'd like to look at chapter 20 which is the the theme of today's message, the first appearances of Jesus. And I was first want to say that the accounts of the resurrection, the resurrection narratives, Jesus appearing to people, differ somewhat between Matthew, Mark and Luke. And this is this is nothing to worry about, I don't believe, because so much happened in that first week that um all of the writers have to be selective in what they write. And good scholars have done a lot of work in fitting these together, how the narratives fit together and to give one story without contradictions. And I don't think it's too difficult to do that, but that's not the focus of what we're doing today. Um, but just as an example of how things can be matched up, in Matthew, Mark and Luke's account, we have a, Mary Magdalene plus a number of women there early in the morning. Whereas here in John, 
we only have Mary Magdalene. However, when she gets back to Peter and Paul, she says, we saw dot, dot, dot. We did this. And so for at least part of that early morning story, she did have some others with her. But the, the story in John focuses on Mary Magdalene and her role in that because she does appear to be the main one in that story. And then um, we have two, basically two panels in this story, two blocks of narratives. And the first panel is the events at the tomb. And the main event of that is Jesus appearing to Mary. And um, But it's this, the, the events that take place at the tomb. Peter and John are also there as part of that story. And then the second panel is what happens in the locked room. Many disciples there, um, there could have been, you know, 40, there could have been a lot, men and women, not just the, the 11. Uh, and we know, the only one we know for certain is that Thomas was there because he was missing at one point. So that is the, the, uh, the, an overview of our passage. <clears throat> and so uh, what we're going to do then is to look at the, some detail in this passage. But before we do that, I'd just like to say, as usual, we're going to be asking the question, what is John's focus? Why is John selecting these aspects of the story? And what's he picking out? What does John really want us to get about this, these events? And um, I want us, as we're reading, to notice two key things that I believe that John is drawing our attention to in the story. The first, there's a lot of emotion going on. There's a lot of negative and positive emotion, and John seems to be picking this out right the way through, and I think it's part of the story. The second is what people actually see that makes them believe and how they react to what they see. And this is important because the climax of the story is going to be um, Jesus saying, these, for John saying, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John is saying that actually these stories are so that you can believe. You can hear stories of other people believing, but the actual end goal is that you believe. And so John is very interested in what makes people believe and what that process is, and of course, whether we engage with that. So I would like then to start us going through the story with events at the tomb. And I just, I've, as usual, I've used some colors and I've used some other symbols here in the story. And I've, I've given different people different colors. Mary Magdalene is yellow there. Um, I have underlined something that I think reflects on, on people's emotions as we go through the story. I have also highlighted believing in red. So let's go through then our story. We begin with the, the first panel, which takes place at the tomb. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Now, I think that reflects on her, the, the earliness reflects on her emotional state that she is so missing Jesus. She's so um, passionately caring about Jesus, that she's right there at the beginning before it's even got daybreak. 
she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran, another indication of what's going on in her, and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. We we know that's John. He refers to himself throughout John's gospel, uh, never by his own name, but by this. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And um, that refrain, we do not know where they've laid him, that occurs three times in this, in her on her lips. And it seems that she, she, her goal is to give him more spices, more embalming from what we read in the other, in the other gospels. And so she's just so upset that she can't even find his body to put more spices on. Verse 3, so Peter set out with the other disciple, heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and reached the tomb first. Why is that detail in there? It's not John trying to boast about his physical prowess. It's, that would be, that would make no sense. Why is that there? Because I think it shows that's going on inside them. They're racing because this is so important to them. Their Jesus has gone. Something has happened to the tomb. They cannot wait to get there. Bending down to look in, he saw the strips of linen cloth lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who'd been following him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen cloth lying there. And so most people would suggest that this is reflecting a personality difference between John and Peter. Both of them are passionately concerned about Jesus, but Peter tends to be more impetuous and just goes on in. And that may well be right. Uh, he saw the, the items there, verse 7, the face cloth, which had been around Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, this is significant because anybody robbing the tomb would not take in the body. They would have taken the valuables, which in those days, it would have been valuable to have taken the cloth, the linen. You think even the soldiers cast lots over Jesus' clothes, textiles were valuable. So somebody robbing the tomb would have taken them. But on the other hand, if somebody was trying to steal Jesus' body for some reason, why would they have unwrapped it? That doesn't make sense. So this is a really big clue. It seems that Peter doesn't quite pick up on the clue, but John does. Verse 8, then the other disciple who'd reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So he didn't really understand what was going on theologically, but he believed. And that is is interesting. This is important because it's the evidence he saw. Something has happened here which makes no sense unless Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so this then is the first part of the story, but we haven't forgotten Mary. Mary is actually the main character here. And Mary seems to have been hanging around. She seems to have come back with them, maybe not running as fast as them, but she's there when they come out. 
So verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. And there you see more of her heart again, that she is so distraught at the one she loves so much. You can see her love for Jesus in this. Weeping, and as she wept, she bent down and looked into the tomb. You remember when when Anne was showing those pictures a few weeks ago of the archaeological tombs, we saw that often the the, the mouth of the, the tomb was very low near, was right low on the ground, and the stone rolled in front of it. And so you'd have to bow down, bend down to look into it. So she bends down to look into the tomb, and she sees, she saw two angels in white, sitting one at the head and one at the feet of where the body of Jesus had lain. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She replied, and she's so single-minded here, she just wants Jesus. She just it doesn't register the fact of these two people in white. She says, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. So this is the first resurrection appearance of Jesus. This moment <clears throat> says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? Thinking him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him. So the third reference to she wants to know where he is. She wants to see his body. Jesus said to her, Mary. And he must have said it in a way that she recognized through countless times he'd spoken to her. There was a way that he said it in, in his voice, Mary. She turned and said to him in her Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And, you know, this really touches me, this story, because just imagine what that felt like for her. That moment, she sees him alive and she recognizes him. It's her, Jesus, and he's alive. Well, it doesn't, one assumes that she embraces him because it says, Jesus says to her, don't keep holding on to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Some old translations say, don't touch me. But that actually, it's the same word um, to hold on. And that makes much better sense in the context. And Jesus is saying, don't keep doing it. That's what the original means. And he says, don't keep holding on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. I think what's going on there is that Jesus is saying, look, don't worry, you're not about to lose me in the next few seconds. You know, there's going to be a while before I ascend to my Father. You don't have to hold on to me like this is your last chance to see me. I think that's what's going on here. But he says, go to my brothers, another reason why she has to let go, and tell them I'm ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. So that is the first panel, just wonderful, just amazing. And a few thoughts about that. Um, So Mary is the first to find the tomb empty, and she's the first to see Jesus risen from the dead. And she is also the one 
whom John portrays as missing Jesus the most, the one who had the most strongest desire to see him. Some have suggested that Mary is like the new Eve, just as the, the fall came originally through partly through Eve, and so Mary is actually reversing that. Mary is the first into the new creation. I think it's an interesting thought. Um, and I think that it is interesting that God has reversed the male and female here that first is the female. And uh, in addition to that, I think that quite simply, God rewards those who diligently seek him. And she was the one who was most passionate to seek him. And God says he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And John is very clearly showing Mary as the one who, who misses and feels Jesus' loss the most. One other point here, which is a very important point, is that all of the Gospels portray the first witnesses as women. And this is an argument for the authenticity of the account that some atheists have said, or former atheists have said, this is what made them become Christians. Because they could not get around the fact that in the Roman world, where the testimony of women would not be counted as very much value at all, in that Roman society, there is no way that a manufactured story would hinge on the witness of women. There is no way whatsoever. The only way you can account for women being the, the primary first witnesses is that actually that's what happened. It wasn't manufactured. You couldn't, ma- you would, it would be stupid to manufacture a story as a story for people to believe if it, if it was different. So that is the, the uh, first panel of stories. And uh, let's just go back to where we're up to with this. Um, we've, uh, we've looked at then these events that happen actually at the tomb. And from now on, we shift away to events that happened in a locked room. We don't know exactly where this locked room was. Um, it's described as the place of the disciples. We don't know exactly where it was, but these events that happened at the locked room, and then we're going to end by looking at Jesus, uh, John's statement at the end about life. So uh, let's go then and look at the next panel. Events in the locked room. And these events uh, begin with the evening of that day, the first day of the week. So this is the day of Jesus' resurrection. It's the same day, the, the day after he died. <clears throat> On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jewish leaders. So notice this, the motion. John's drawing our attention to the state. They're in fear. They're in terror. Uh, they're locking themselves away. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. We're going to have that expression three times from Jesus' lips. And just imagine what that felt like when Jesus says and brings them peace. And we don't read of fear among them again. It says, verse 20, when he'd said this and showed them his hands and his side, the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And so we have fear being turned to joy in 
this event. So this is the, 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 the first little incident that happens. And then we have verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Just as the Father has sent me, so I also send you. Now, there are going to be three things here. First of all, he says, I'm going to send you. The second thing, after he said this, he breathed out and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Then the third thing, if you forgive anyone's sins, they stand forgiven. If you retain any, they stand retained. So, we're going to just open that up and spend a little bit more time on it because there's quite a lot in there and I want to unpack that. So let's look at what's going on. So in the second panel, we have five little stories. We have fear to joy, which is the first thing. Now we have the sending out on the mission, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. And there's three other stories. There's Thomas didn't believe, Thomas believing, and the statement at the end of why John wrote the gospel. So those are the stories that we have. But let's focus then on this sending on the mission. What's this about? And what's this about the Spirit? How he begins by saying, um, uh, I'm, uh, uh, this is the, the Spirit. Uh, I'm, he breathes out and breathes the Spirit. Well, there's been a lot of discussion about this, and some people say, well, you know, John's getting mixed up here. Actually, he's talking about Pentecost, but like he wanted to finish the gospel earlier, so he kind of put squashed Pentecost into this moment. Um, it's another way of speaking about Pentecost, which doesn't make any sense at all. And a rather reason why it's, it can't be Pentecost is because in John 16, Jesus is very clear about the Pentecost event. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So why is this important? Because Jesus here is talking about something that happens after he ascends to heaven, not while he's with them. It's, so it can't, it clearly can't be talking about this verse. And then the next verse says, when he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, which is what happened on Pentecost. You know, it was Peter's gospel preaching. Immediately people were convicted. They said, what should we do to be saved? And there was a huge number saved. And so he's describing in verse eight, Pentecost. And so it doesn't really match up if we say this verse about Jesus breathing is Pentecost. What is it then? What's he talking about here? Um, well, the word he uses for breathing at this point is quite a rare word in the scriptures. And in the Greek Old Testament, we have it referred to when um, God breathes life into Adam. We have it referred to when Ezekiel is prophesying to dry bones and speaks to them and the bones come to life. And we also have it when um, Elijah brings someone to life, a boy to life, by, by breathing into his body. Um, particularly, I think, behind this is um, Genesis chapter 2. Because I, I was speaking last week about the resurrection being a new creation. A new kind of humanity was born here. And this fits very, very well into what's the imagery of creation, because here, the first creation, the Lord formed in Genesis 2, verse 7, then the Lord 
God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Same word. And so we see life for the old creation brought into someone through this. So, okay, so what's going on here? Well, I think that we also should note that this happened on the day of Jesus' resurrection when Jesus was raised by through the power of the Spirit. As we saw last week, Paul talks about how the, the man of dust was made of dust, but the man of the Spirit was made of spirit. And Jesus' new body was not a body made of dust, but it was radically different to ours. And that should make us think of John chapter 3, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind, which is like breath, it's another word for breath, blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So I want to suggest to you that what is going on in these verses is quite simply that the promise in John chapter 3 is happening, that these disciples, all who are there, and in fact all believers in Jesus, at this point receive the new life in the same way as it's described here. Something new. They become members of the new creation. Now, they're not empowered for service until Pentecost. Uh, Jesus quite clearly tells them that that is empowerment. They're going to receive power from on high, and that's when the, the church is born. But at this point, I believe what's happening is it Jesus is saying, this resurrection that I've had, this new life, this new creation, uh, is actually you're getting this at the same point in time. So um, that's how I think we should understand this. Um, also, in those words, we have the connection of, of Jesus, what Jesus says about forgiving sins and, you know, as you, as you forgive sins. Actually, let's go back to that. Um, let's go back to those verses. If you forgive anyone's sins, they stand forgiven. If you retain any, they stand retained. What's happening there? Um, I think that this, this verse here, um, verse 23 must be read in context, in, in the, um, in the context of the last verse here at the end where he says, um, these things are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so forgiveness of sins is only through believing. So what's going on here? Well, we're going to see, I think, that the mission of the disciples, the mission of the disciples is quite simply to tell the story of Jesus. And that is the story of Jesus leads to the forgiveness of sins. That he says, you have the power to bring life to people by telling my story. And so it's not that they themselves forgive the sins, but they give their people the ability to have their sins forgiven by telling the story. So they're like holding the words of life in their hands. Are they going to give them or are they going to withhold them? And of course, the suggestion is that they should give them 
Um, so we've then looked at, uh, let's, let's see, let's look at these the five stories we've got here. Um, we've got Theater Joy, Sending on the Mission, which we've just seen. And then Thomas Doesn't Believe, Thomas Believes, and Why John Wrote the Gospel. So uh, let's go back to Thomas, shall we then? And he's in our next little story. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Some translations say Didymus, but that just means twin. He was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, unless I see in his hands the scar from the nails and put my finger into the scar from the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe it. So this is another evidence, I believe, that this is, is the, that Jesus really was raised from the dead. This story isn't made up because it, Thomas was one of the twelve. You know, he's one of the apostles and he, I know, had a ministry. He had a, one of the, one of the pillars of the early church. And so would the church preserve a story so damaging about Thomas if, if it didn't happen? It wouldn't make any sense. Uh, similarly with Peter, of course. So, this doesn't look good for Thomas, but actually Jesus doesn't condemn him for this. Jesus uses it as an important point for his story. Uh, so what happens is eight days later, now actually this would have been on the Sunday again because they counted days, including the first and the last. So they'd include the Sunday at both ends. So this again is the first day of the week. Eight days later, His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you, the same as before. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and examine my hands. Stretch your hand and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. What did Thomas say? We don't believe it. We don't understand from what we read that Thomas even needed to do that. He said, my Lord and my God. And this actually is the high point of in the John's gospel of anybody declaring who Jesus is. They've said he's a Messiah and other things before. But now to say my God is the high point. So Thomas comes to this point and Jesus says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And this uh, is, in terms of the story, this fits very, very nicely into the final point which John is leading us into, because the question now comes, what do you need to see to believe? What's required that you believe? And Jesus is saying, actually, you're even better off if you believe without having seen the resurrected body, uh, my body. So an important point, very important point. So let's read this last section. Now many other miraculous signs were done by Jesus in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name.
John is giving us the purpose of his book. His book is written as a testimony of what happened to Jesus so that we can believe through his words, even though we don't see the the uh, risen Messiah. And so that leads me into the last point this morning. We've started by looking at events at the tomb, the first panel of stories, and then the other stories are, take place in the locked room. And we're going to end by reflecting on the words that close this chapter by believing you may have life in his name. How do we access this life? I became a Christian when I was 17. My dad was a pastor. I had the blessing of hearing hundreds of gospel sermons. But why did it take me so long? Somehow, I'd got the wrong message, the wrong idea. I'd wanted to become a Christian for a long time. I I would call myself a seeker. But somehow I'd got the wrong idea. I thought I had to work up to some feeling of faith. I had to kind of feel faith in me. I had to have an emotional experience of becoming a Christian. I'd read stories. I'd heard stories of people who become Christians and there was some great emotional event and, you know, they felt the power of God. And, and I felt that I had to have that and I needed to work that up somehow. And the trouble is that we can turn becoming a Christian into a work, into something that we have to do. We have to achieve some level of belief, some some experience, something we have to do in our hearts. But all we have to do is to look at Jesus and turn from our sins. Turn, I won't even say, I'm going to be careful about saying that, turn to follow Jesus because we're going to keep on sinning we're going to keep on falling short and i'm going to say that the same message is applicable this morning to believers to christians because our goal is to have life and to have life in abundance and so my last slide is entitled how we have life and i'm going to say the way that we have life either by becoming the first time we enter into life as we become Christians or by re, by gaining more of it, is we have to simply believe that Jesus is truly both God and man, as Thomas said, my Lord and my God. He died on the cross to take away sin and he rose from the dead in victory. It's simply believing that, believing those things are true But I'm going to say there's one more thing from that, is that we submit to him as Lord. Now, the word repent is often misunderstood um, as some kind of emotional thing. The word repent comes from an Old Testament word. The word is shuv in the Old Testament. It's quite simply change direction. Quite simply, you're going one way to, to shuv or to repent is to turn around and go in the opposite direction. And the way that Jesus describes it is to follow me. Um, and the way later on it's described in the New Testament is Jesus is Lord. Is he your Lord? And so I'm going to suggest there's two parts to this. There is <coughs> believing the truth of those 
primary facts and the saying with 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 uh, Thomas, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. And saying this, confessing this, is what it is to become a Christian. But I I want to say, and I want to end with this, do all Christians have the same amount of life? Jesus says, I came that you may have life. Do we have the same amount of life? Well, yes and no. If we're a Christian, we all have the Spirit in us. We will all be with him for eternity in the new creation. But our experience of life in this life will vary in accordance with how we pursue Jesus. And I want to say Mary is the preeminent example of focusing on Jesus and receiving him. Mary's experience of life in this story was the preeminent one. And Mary, I would say, is the best example here. And so my last word would be simply keep your eyes on Jesus. Be like Mary. Keep your eyes on him. Read his words. Spend time with him in prayer. Hang out with him by thinking of him often. May he be in your thoughts. Be like Mary and have life in abundance. So let's close in prayer. Thank you, Jesus that you are victorious, that you rose from the dead and you came to turn our our fear, our terror into joy. You came to bring us life. You prayed to bring us life in abundance. And we pray, God, that each of us will just have a passionate desire for you. We'll be like Mary, pursuing you, wanting you, keeping our eyes on you, thinking of you, that we may have a richness of life in this age and in the age to come, know you and your love forever. Amen.